it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Raj Gopalan, 
Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg. Explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG guys. Hello, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast. I'm PVSB, and when I'm not co-hosting this podcast, along with my partner, Shri and Brian, I serve as Partnership Acceleration Lead at Flywheel Digital, the leading managed services business that helps brands grow their e-commerce. I'm hosting this episode on my own because I find myself this week in the United Kingdom on a little flywheel business, so I thought, why not kill two birds with one stone by conducting some in-person interviews? Before we get to our guest, I'll remind everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. We're on over 40 major and minor ones. And if you use Apple or Spotify, please, please go to the app. You're probably listening to this on your phone. And just give us a star rating and even write us a review because the rating will help feed the algorithm and help other people find this podcast. But the review is what helps us tailor the content to meet your needs. So we're very excited about that. We're honored to be rated actually the number one CPG podcast for over two years running, at least according to Feedspot, which is one of the biggest lists for organizing and ranking podcasts. And we actually have joining us on that list at number 11, our sister podcast, CPG Scoop, hosted by Reset and Jennifer. And number 13, our very own Brian Gildenberg with CPG Guys Fast Forward and debuting at number 30, the FMCG Guys. So we're really happy to have created and fostered this community of podcasts that extends the conversation in many different directions. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention how honored we are to be formal sponsors of Next Up, formerly known as Network of Executive Women, whose mission it is to advance all women in business. Shri was on stage last week at Next Up's Executive Forum in Austin, Texas, and all three of us, Shri, Brian, and myself, will actually be appearing in Chicago at the Next Up Summit happening in September. So if you're thinking about going to this event, please take a look at it. It should be a lot of fun, and we're excited. We'll be talking with a lot of people. We'll be recording some episodes. While we're at the summit, link to our podcast, our sister cast, and our landing page on Next Up may be found in the digital liner notes of this episode. So let's get to our guest. Speaking of which, uh, I met him earlier this year at Shop Talk Europe, where he appeared on stage talking about the incredible growth of retail media and how brands are leveraging this explosive channel to engage consumers in more meaningful ways. Our guest joined the Coca-Cola organization in 2006, working his way up to the bottling organization, starting as a business planning controller. That sounds very financial in nature. And into shopper marketing and customer account management, working with iconic retailers here in the UK, like Waitrose and Sainsbury. A decade ago, he entered the digital realm, one of the first people to do so on the CPG side, trying to drive all phases of the path to purchase for consumers buying Coca-Cola products. In 2015, he assumed the role as Global Customer Director for Walmart International as part of the Coca-Cola company, now moving over to the parent from the bottler. And two years ago, he was promoted to Vice President Global Omnichannel Commercial Strategy. Please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Simon Miles. Simon, hello. How are you? I'm great. It's so good to see you. Thanks I know. I know it's been a long time of having Coca-Cola on this podcast. Uh, I always credit the success of CPG Guys to a degree to the very first Coca-Cola guest that came on. He's no longer with Coca-Cola, but John Mount came on and I was begging him to be a guest. And it was so funny. He said to me, Peter, I, I'm really trying to get Coke's corporate communications to approve you. 
but they have no idea who you are. And I said, yeah, they haven't heard of us yet. And that's why I need your help, John. Uh, and I'm going to call in that IOU. Remember how I helped you build a plan to get Dasani Case Pack relisted in Kroger after the bidding war that took place with the competitors? He goes, yeah, yeah, I remember. I said, okay, I'm calling in my IOU. And he says, fine, I'll go to bat, bat for you. And he did. And he, he got them to approve us. And that ultimately led to our next guest from Coca-Cola, Brian Sappington. And and more recently, though not nearly recently enough, we had Joe Davis, uh, who has since left the organization, was leading e-commerce in North America. And so you're the first fourth person from Coca-Cola, but I know it's going to be our best conversation today. Fantastic. Big shoes to fill, but uh, it's um, a pleasure to be here. Well, that's because I think I think Brian has like a size 13. Right? So, <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, I appreciate you making time during my visit here to London to sit down and have a chat with me. Uh, before we get to the questions I've prepared, why don't you please give us a description of what your team does at Coca-Cola and what your mission is? Yeah, I mean, I've got one of the longest job titles, I think. Yeah. Anyway, right? so, yeah, if you get paid by the letter, then that's yeah, yeah, that's perfect. So it's got these <laughs> giant business cards. But, um, yeah, so so I lead the work. I'm part of the global customer and commercial leadership function at Coca-Cola, um, looking after our omnichannel customers. So that means I work with the obvious candidates like, you know, Walmart, Amazon, Carrefour. Tesco and, and many others. Um, and we have a, a small team. We, we don't just focus on the retail guys. We also look after food service aggregators and quick commerce players and wholesale businesses as well as they digitize. So really any of our customers who are building a big digital partner business as well as their sort of stores. Um, then we get involved helping you know, guide the teams, uh, internal coaching, all that kind of stuff, as well as you know, working directly with customers ourselves. That's a great preface to our conversation. Thank you. We're going to include in the digital liner notes of this episode links to your LinkedIn profile, Coca-Cola's LinkedIn page. So over 90% of our listeners do so on their mobile device. So you just toggle over, you click, and you can learn more about Simon as you listen to our conversation. So let's get down to the questions. Since you're squarely in digital commerce, let's discuss the current state of this particular discipline. And industry insiders talk about return to stores, this concept that uh, that people are now shopping in stores again en masse post-pandemic. So my question to you is, has e-commerce plateaued? Is there more growth to be had? And can you address this both from the perspective of North America and other global markets? Because I think you'll probably agree that there are. Uh, e-commerce in the United States has a very dominant player and everyone seems to be following that and it's very different market by market. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on digital commerce around the world. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the initial point there on return to stores, I mean, that's real. Right? Coming out of the pandemic, we, we all saw the big shift to online and there's been a kind of somewhat of a redress as people have been able to and uncomfortable to return to stores. So we've, we've seen that in our business for sure. Um, but I, I don't know about you, Peter, I never subscribe to the view that um, you know, it was the death of the store. Now, you know, I never saw that as the future anyway. And so what we're seeing now is that balance coming through with a bigger chunk of the business being more digitally enabled and digitally focused uh, on e-commerce. And, you know, when I look to the future where I think that's going, I still think that the underlying trends that were growing the e-commerce business prior to COVID are still there. So you think about things like, you know, the growth of convenience. You know, it's a very convenient yeah. shop. You think about the fact that many of our uh, retailers and, and restaurant businesses and stuff are improving the user experience on their sites. So that makes it easier to shop. And so that's, you know, I guess, also driving people to it. Um, and I think people are just living their lives in a more flexible fashion and they've kind of got used to that. You know, there's, there's something about, isn't there, if you do the same thing for about six months or so, it 
becomes a habit. Until you've been brought uptown or whatever for a couple of years, I think a lot of those habits have gone away. And also, I think when you look outside of the kind of Western Europe and North American markets, and you look at what the profile of the populations are like, there's a lot of you know very young populations in West Africa, India, those kind of places. And I think you know people are predisposed more to sort of more dig- live their lives more digitally. And so those things I think are still there as driving factors. I don't see why you know you won't continue to see it growth. Um, and certainly when we look at some of the forecasts that, that come out and we look at different regions of the world, you know, whilst the Western markets, if you want to call them that, the growth is slower than we've seen in the last few years, you're still seeing rapid growth in ASEAN, in Latin, in India, in Africa, you know, those kind of regions of the world is powering on. So, yeah, I think it's still um, in a good place in terms of the e-commerce market. Yeah, I, I think that too often there's a tendency to think in absolutes, that if once you're e-commerce, that's all you do. And that's just not the truth. I always look at e-commerce as a mechanism, to your point, it talks, you talk about convenience. To me, that's a trip mission. Yeah. So there are elements where I'm going to use e-commerce for particular trip missions and other ones where if uh, if if I'm doing a stock up and I've got foresight to what I'm, for, for thought to what I'm trying to shop for, I'm going to do that. But even as we learned, I, see, I saw some really interesting data from Target saying that about 25 to 35% of their uh, curbside transactions also include people then going into the store, which is why I talked about this in the prior podcast. If you went and looked at the parking lot of a Target in the United States a year ago, they had 10 spots or six spots for, for curbside. They now have 20. Why do they do that? Because if the price you pay to have a consumer come and they love parking because it's a little closer to the store, get they don't have to park way in the back of the lot. And it's I'm going to give them a spot where they can do their curbside and then leave their car there and go in and do some more shopping. Why would I not do that? But what's it cost me? The, the effort to paint stripes on the <laughs> on the tarmac? I mean it's, it's crazy. crazy. I think that's exactly right. I think the other factor is, you know, very wanted by categories, certain categories clearly lend themselves more to an in-store experience. Yeah. So, and particularly if you think about grocery, you know, the fresh produce, you know, people want, maybe want to touch and feel and smell and that kind of stuff. So that that is easier to think about as a, as a in-person, in-physical store shop. Whereas other categories, you may be you know, very happy just to take, you know, the regular butt, you know, think like cleaning products and stuff like right. that. So, so I think it will vary by category too. So let's talk about the importance of omni-channel retailers to Coca-Cola in particular. How does Coca-Cola seek to support their digital customer engagement journey through capabilities and such? Like, what do you bring to the table? How is Coca-Cola helping to make shopping ultimately easier for consumers in non-digital world? Yeah, so, I mean, first thing to say, they are of huge importance to us, our retail customers. Um, you know, it's still the majority of the business if you're in a developed market, being um, in retail customers. Um, and essentially, you know, for us, our mission is to want to be the best partners for our retailers, whether they're large or small, actually. So you, know, you can you can easily get trapped in forms of traps saying, well, it's all about the big ones. Actually, you know, because of the nature of the distribution of our brands, you know, 200 plus countries, where you know, wherever you go in the, in the world, pretty much, you'll come find a you know, small customer just as important as large. Um, and, you know, our reach of our brands is somewhat unique, but it gives us visibility, I think, to trends on the ground because we're so, you know, in so many different places. And so I think we're able to kind of bring some of that to the table when we partner up with the retailers. 
Um, and for us, it's all about value creation together. So, so how do we you know, bring our insight from you know, our kind of reach across the globe to say, hey, we've spotted this, this is, this is emerging, we should think about this, there's probably something we can learn from this market to this one. And we bring all of that sort of thinking to the table. Um, but I think increasingly um, where we are now, where we're moving to, data is a really central part of that. So you know, we're obviously sitting on lots and lots of data as you know, a data-driven organisation, as our retail partners are increasingly. And the power of putting those two things together is phenomenal. And so, you know, think we're trying to th- understand you know, how we use data to really think end-to-end for our shoppers. So, you know, the part of that is we were just discussing, you know, it could be all manner of things. You know, it's curbside pickup, it's in store, it's online, it's all these different things. And so, you know, what we need to do is try and think how we give the shopper the best experience we can about that. Whichever way they want to go, mm-hmm. then we want to show up there. And so we're bringing our insights around things like digital shelf content, around inspiring by occasions, um, you know, just to maximize the benefits to show up in that shop as much as they want. I think about so many creative things that Coca-Cola has done and talking about both technology and insights. I think about um, the Coca-Cola machine that if you hugged it in a particular way, it would give you a free set of what's called viral marketing. Yeah. I remember when Freestyle was introduced. This is the free service design your own beverage. A lot of people thought, oh, what a great novelty. I, as a data person, immediately thought, oh, my God. This is the greatest source of innovation and inspiration ever. I can design a new flavor based upon what the data is telling me people are choosing. So if, if suddenly you see Diet Coke Orange appear uh, in cans in the store, you can bet on dollar that that probably came out of insights from something like the Freestyle Machine. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to give away a lot of trade secrets, but clearly you're, you're you're not a confirmed Martin. Exactly. I can't possibly comment. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're going to be rocket scientists to, to think that would be a good way to think about, you know, understanding trends and flavors and those kind of things. And obviously we, we do all the traditional types of research as well to drive a lot of that thinking. But you know, increasingly, I think that cross channel uh, thing you were talking about, which is it might be something which emerges out of food service and then, you know, ends up in the retail package. Business is also, you know, very common for us. So that's what I'm saying. A lot of people don't realize that Coca-Cola is actually a matrix organization. There's the parent company, which makes the concentrate, and they in turn sell that to bottlers who then, in each market, distribute those products to retailers. So I'd love to understand, in this kind of highly matrix, large global organization, how are you working to be able to drive innovation and agility in the work you're doing? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, actually, because, you know, I think all up in the Coca-Cola systems, of course, all the bottlers and the company together, so that's 700,000 people. So it's a, you know, it's a big beast of a thing to, to do. However, that very nature of that network, that we are somewhat decentralized, that we have this powerful bottling network, I think actually is a strategic advantage here that gives us that agility we're looking for. And, of course, I spent the first half of my co-career in one of the bottling sure. organizations, right? So um, doing a whole series of different roles. And I think, I think although we have those kind of, you know, a lot of big brands, we have the ability to, to tailor and nuance and understand the local markets because of the local nature of our bottling partners. And so it's a, it's a really powerful um, tool, I think, that we have that's somewhat unique and different and um, that allows Coca-Cola to innovate uh, more quickly because you've got people whose sole focus is serving the local customers, serving the local consumers. And so, you know, the, within the bottling part of the, the Coke system, 
is phenomenal understanding of you know, local um, nuance and trends and those kind of things. It keeps us very close. So we see trends early as a result of being able to partner up with our, um, with our bottling partners. And, and so we can, we can act. And it's, it's, I think it's a real big strategic advantage for us. And I think well, I'll give you one, one story that, that I really enjoyed. Last year, I spent a bit of time in India, a few trips down there, various different things. Well, one of the companies I went to, to see was um, based out of Mumbai. It's a small and quick commerce bank in the sector. Yeah. Um, pretty small place. In other words, you know, single city, starting up. And um, they were just, you know, doing a really nice job of, of all the quick commerce stuff, so, you know, delivering five minutes type stuff. But they wanted to do it. They were much more sort of ethically driven. So they were much more about recycling and you know, that kind of stuff. So it's paper bags, not plastic, and those kind of things. Yeah. And they said to us, hey, hey, what could we do together, you know, that, around recycling? So, so we, within, I think within about six or eight weeks, we had a program up and running with them. Whereby they'd read a bit of code into the app when you ordered that said you had some plastic bottles in your household that could be collected. So then their rider turns up at your house, gives you whatever you've ordered, you know, chocolate bar and then they take away the plastic bottles. That comes back to the depot. We provided them a recycling um, solution, which then gets taken away and recycled. Right. So it's just one little example where, you know, the, the, kind of within a few weeks, we were able to kind of, you know, we had that local contact. And we had that. Now that is being scaled up this year big time in India. So that's now gone into, you know, um, I think it's about 20 cities now already. And so within a few months, we went on to do that. And, and we're starting to, you know, we, we've showcased that internally to some other sort of regions of the world to try and think how do we build out new innovation in that way. So it's just one example where, you know, it comes up from even a single city, and then we're able to get sight of that. And then, you know, because I was, I was in the region and that connection is good with our Indian colleagues, then you know, we were able to scale it. That is a great example about how you take uh, a very localized idea and uh, scale up the innovation. So uh, I did a 23andMe DNA test on myself um, recently, and surprisingly, they found traces of uh, Clive Hunley and Edwina Dunn uh, <laughs> from my years of Dunn. I guess I don't know through osmosis or something. But I, I I joke, but I believe that that started me on my journey towards customer centricity. I heard you talk about customer centricity quite a deal in podcast episodes. You've done other interviews. I'd love to know how you instill customer centricity into your team and why you think that's so important. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a, we have a sort of little a phrase from the commercial um, division, which talks about cons- um, consumer and customer back, right? So, you know, so important. So yes, we, yes, we're consumer back, we're customer back. So we build it right for our customers. Um, and to be honest, there's a couple of things I would say. That. One is this, there's good formal sort of planning processes, if you like, that, yeah. that puts the customer um, at the heart of what we're trying to do, which we try and build out from, from their plans and then think how that to help support that. Um, as we you know discuss with them and build JVPs and those kind of things, right? So there's the kind of formal side of it. But there's also, I think, just as important as the informal side of it, which is I'm constantly, you, you'll know this from sort of seeing me a bit, but you know, I'm very externally focused outside of it. Yeah. And I encourage my team to be the same because that's where you learn. That's where you understand, I think, what's going on. So it's absolutely essential to spend time in market, spend time with the customers, um, you know, online, in-store, wherever they are. Um, and, you know, I, I always preferred, I mean, you mentioned in the intro, you know, I used to manage Sainsbury's and Waitress. I would have always much preferful to meet them in-store than meeting in head office, right? 
Because that's where it happens. That's where the magic happens, right? And that's where you get the real story of, of what you need to do to, to keep your plans away. So I think it is a combination of having the right processes and stuff internally to, you know, to do the real work, but actually be externally focused as much as you can. Because you're not going to learn much sitting at desk, frankly. I remember my first week at Dunhamby working on the Coca-Cola business. Our friend John Mount was running the the total beverage team at, at Kroger. And he asked me to go out with one of his route drivers. And it was so eye-opening for me because we walk in the store and the first place we went was to the front end and we merchandised all of the front end coolers. Then we merchandised the displays. That's where I first heard the churn points of inspiration yep. as being the mechanism throughout the store. Then we merchandised the shelf. And then before we left, we went back to the front end and we re-merchandised because if we could fill in four or five bottles that had been consumed in the two hours we were in the store, understanding that the, uh, the margin for both the retailer and Coca-Cola was much more centered on the front end as impulse purchase than it is with the rest of the pack size. That helped me set the tone for how I needed to focus my insights to support the broader goals of the Coca-Cola organization. I agree with you. You have to be passionate about understanding who your customers are. Uh, and in my case, my customer was Coca-Cola. And it's funny, if you go to the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta, it's a museum in the middle of town for those of you who've never been to it. Um, the second floor has all of these rooms full of paraphernalia of Coca-Cola, you will find a collection of about 20 iPhone covers for each different brand within the Coca-Cola family. Those are mine. And I would interchange them depending upon who I was meeting. So if I was meeting with the brand director on Mellow Yellow, I would slap off Mellow Yellow phone cover. And I know you and I are very on brand for that. And invariably in the conversation, I put it down on the, on the counter. And invariably, the, his or her eyes would shift. And they go, is that a metal yellow phone? Like, well, yes, it is. I've never seen one. Well, I hope you haven't. I had it custom made. You did. Why? Well, I'm a big fan of your brand. You're a big fan of my brand. I'm a big fan of my brand. And, and it drove engagement and trust and excitement. And that's how I do my business. And I've got to imagine when, you, when you're in a physical store with one of your customers and you can talk about where the inspiration happens, it's a perfect time to be collaborative. Yeah, it is. I couldn't agree more. And I think I think it's really important, you know, to 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 see your customer. Whilst well sometimes, you know, it's a difficult it can be a difficult relationship, can't it? Sure. You've got to be passionate about the business and you've got actually I think you've got to really be a fan of the business. I mean I, yes. you know, I'm, I I worked on the Walmart International business for, for five years or so. Um when I came over to the company side. I love I think they're an awesome organization. I mean they're so impressive. The, the way they go about doing business. You know, they're good to deal with. Of course, they're tough, right? But that's their business to be tough. So we, but we had some really robust, good discussions, you know, did some great work together. I love going around the stores today. You know, I was in one two weeks ago when I was in the US. Um, you know, I just think it's phenomenal. You've got to, I think you've got to have that passion. Um, and it's interesting you talk about that, that front end story because, you know, that whole piece around understanding where do you make the money? You know, how do you understand your customer's P&L as well as your own yeah. is absolutely vital to success. And I think... You know, I've done, I was working, I used to run the category team at one time in, in Coca-Cola when I was on the bottling side. And we did a whole series of sort of category vision types, pieces of work, right? And, and we said, well, I've ever seen, pretty much always comes out the biggest opportunity is closure availability gaps. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's always the big one, right? And it's a big bugbear for the retailers, obviously, because they know that any, any time they're out of stock, then that's you know, lost opportunities. So that's why we're so fanatical about, you know, we look back around and re-merchandise. Even if it's just a few packs that go in, it makes a tremendous difference. And it makes a difference to them and it makes a difference to us because A, P and L, B, you know, the availability is the big driver um, to close some opportunity gaps. So you're absolutely right. You've got to be right in, in and be passionate about what, what the And it's like this. Think about those kind of pack sizes. And I think about the goal of retailers to make e-commerce transactions more profitable the opportunity to add margin-rich products to the order in a very frictionless way is an aspiration that, that I know the retailers probably have, and I'm sure you are trying to figure out how to support that as well. So I think what Target's done with uh, having, you can order your Starbucks coffee as you're pulling up, or when you uh, offer recipes to people that you make sure that you're highly promoting the spices that uh, are part of the recipe line because spices are very margin-rich item for retail and they can turn it on a profitable basket into a profitable basket. So figuring out ways to do that, particularly with things like single serve in beverages is a great way to be able to do that. Um, I want to remind everybody that uh, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Simon Miles from the Coca-Cola Company. Uh, we are having a great conversation here. I, I want to turn it to uh, our favorite topic. So I heard you speak at length about this at Shop Talk Europe. And of course, I'm talking about retail media. It's an explosive channel for brands to engage with consumers in a meaningful way. Um, I'd love to hear from you. What makes it so interesting for brands like Coca-Cola? And what will ultimately drive the growth of investment from your company standpoint against these emerging yeah, it's a, it's a huge, I mean, big talking point right now. I mean, I often find myself talking on, on this topic. And I think what I go back to is is there was there was a really good piece of work which came out of the University of Arkansas, actually. They wrote a recent white paper last fall. Um, a great and, one. It was very Yeah, it was really informative, and it really helped us to, to think through you know, some of the challenges in the landscape. And, and the first part of that paper talked about the promise of retail media networks. And I think, you know, for us, and I think most people kind of can intuitively get what promises and it's, it's kind of win-win-win, right? So if all this works out, then what happens is consumers will get a much better position, they'll get, more, um, they'll get better offers, you know, in a timely way, be more relevant, all that kind of stuff, right? which makes the shopping experience faster, better, cheaper. Yes. Uh, retailers clearly, you know, have the opportunity to monetize the traffic and to, you know, earn high margin revenue streams, that's obvious. And from a brand perspective, you know, we're able to shut in our consumers' lives and drive, you know, whether that's frequency of purchase or whether it's, you know, just making the right offers in a really, you know, wonderful kind of creative way um, and, and measure the effectiveness of that in a kind of close loop. And that's the real right? power. That's, right? the, that's the key, right? So, and everybody kind of gets that, right? But the reality is a bit different today um, in terms of where we're at. So, you know, everybody's running very fast to try and figure out how this should work. And I think, for me, some, some of the areas that I think will unlock this, I think clearly data is at the heart of this, right? Is, is at the centre of the how we resolve, you know, the challenges and um, you know how we make this thing work. Um, and so I think there are still ways to go in terms of definitions around which are the metrics which really drive performance and for which objective. Yeah. Because if you think about metrics as monolithic to every campaign, you're missing the boat. Because are you really trying to drive ROAS? when you're launching a new product. You're trying to drive awareness. You're trying to drive trial. That's not 
the objective. Mm-hmm. That's what you're trying to do with a scale mature brand, but it's not necessarily. Absolutely. And so you have to understand the nuances of what is the outcome you're seeking and use the measurements that are appropriate for that. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, but the portfolio is wide as ours. You know, whilst we have brands like Coca-Cola, so clearly, you know, very different job to something we launched, you know, six months ago, right? Okay. So, so you're absolutely right. You've got to set your objectives up up front to know which the data points that you're really interested in. And then I think, you know, the reality is some of the, some of the platforms are able to do the sort of attribution get to the data better than others. And so it's an uneven playing field at the moment that we're trying to, you know, work through. Um, and I think there's a whole piece around definitions even. You know, seeing as basic as standards, so we, you and I have the same understanding of what we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about either metrics or even just, you know, something in general. And so there's, there's some great work actually out of the IAB coming out recently. Which I think that's a, really nice a great first step at trying to get people's head around what are the, what, what is a click? I mean, you, yeah. you sit there and say, well, I know what a click is, but do you? Yeah. Because you know what? Some may get, define it differently than you do it. Having that is the first step to being able to to do measurement. But I also agree that when I think of IROAS and you think about the attribution window for a consumer, for a high fast moving consumer good, it's fundamentally different than for someone who bought a television. Right. Because the path to purchase and the time it takes to make that kind of investment is fundamentally different. So there's all sorts of other things, but I do agree with you. I think the IB did a great first step. Yeah. So I think that was a really you know, great addition to the literature. There's lots of literature around that. Sure. It's just it's helping to kind of you know formulate that, that discussion. I think the other thing is around for me, this is one of the biggest um, industry opportunities for collaboration I've seen in a long time yeah. because I don't believe any one organization is going to crack this on right. And so, you know, I, and when I say collaboration, I mean, you know, within organizations where we know there are lots of silos that are difficult to overcome when you've got this new world where you've got marketing and media and commercial and shop marketing and all the rest trying to kind of you know come together. Same thing, by the way, on the retailer side. And then you've got retailer supplier collaboration. How, who needs to be in the room? How do we have those conversations? Yeah. Was it need for JDPs? All that stuff. And then the agencies too, right? The agency relationship and how that, that plays out. So it's a big challenge from a collaboration point of view. Um, but, you know, I think in the end, it'll come down to the core being, you know, how we work together as an industry, how we set our standards and definitions, how we, you know, judge the right data points and the media metrics. But almost the bigger prize in some ways is how does that in the end drive basket spend? Yeah. Right? Because that's ultimately that's what the retailers will want, right? Um, so yes, of course they're getting you know revenue in, but ultimately, you know, sustainable growth will come through as well through us for us influencing basket incidents on some of our bigger brands is it's a huge prize, um, as which is worth investing in. So you've got to think, you know, somewhat differently. It's not just this immediate play. It's not just a commercial play, it's a combination of both. I mean, I totally understand why retailers are getting into retail media. I mean, grocers have operated for 100-plus years on a net 2% margin basis, and suddenly you're presented with retail media that is a much more rich uh, margin structure. Like, yes, I want to do that. The question is, do I have something that is compelling, and do I have the scale? Uh, I, I, th- I fundamentally believe that a lot of the regional retailers, particularly in North America, that want to play in this game are going to have to form an alliance in order to deliver the kind of scale. But they also have really powerful assets, right? They have they have stores, and the the the, the when you have uh, linear television waning in its influence and print print media newspapers waning in its influence, and suddenly you say, "Well, yeah, but I can still reach those consumers that are coming to the store." I think the work that uh, uh, Andrew Lipson did at eMarketer 
on the future of, of in-store retail media is promising. I know Walmart is chasing that like crazy and there are a bunch of other retailers that are doing it. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. But you mentioned data and I'm going to talk a little bit about that because being at the heart of retail media, the question becomes personal data can be a really positive force for creating relevant messages to consumers as they're shopping, but it has to be used very responsibly. Love to hear your thoughts around that. How do you see clean rooms, uh, things like Amazon Marketing Cloud, facilitating the collaboration of data assets on both sides of the table? Yeah, it's a it's a thorny one, isn't it? Yeah, um, you know, data is is uh, a double edged sword because you know tech reaches like like we're here in London right now, like GDPR regulations really tough here. You know, right. so you have to be very respectful. And I think you know our industry needs that very responsibly here when we talk anything we're talking about data and for sure, you know. On the same page there, but we just have to make sure we're we're very diligent um, around that. But I think in the end, data is the key unlock here. That you know, if we can get ourselves to a place where we are utilizing data to measure the objectives, measure the effectiveness of what we're doing in a closed loop fashion, I think that will drive the investment that we all kind of believe can be made, but frankly, won't be made if we don't see it. Because that's the other side of it. You know, we're all seeing these fantastic forecasts of, wow, this is going to be, you know, it's a $100 billion industry now. It's going to be 160 in four or five years' time. That won't happen if we don't get this data piece right. Sure. And if we can't actually measure the effectiveness of it. Um, and so I do think, you know, this responsible way of doing it through the likes of, the, of, of clean rooms, I think is absolutely vital to say we need to come together so that we can genuinely measure the effectiveness of that. So it does support the collaboration thing. But the data is a, is a core element of that. Um, but, you know, I think, as we were sort of saying earlier, I think you've got the data at the middle, but I think you've got the objective setting at the top end, which is, yeah. which is absolutely crucial, and then the state of your relationship, because you've got to be pretty transparent back from here. Um, and that's not always easy. You know, this is a new area. Um, you know, people aren't used to kind of sharing lots of stuff, and whilst, you know, Kingdom's a good facilitator of that in a safe yeah. way, that's, I think, one of the key things that we, need, we all need to kind of um, move towards because if we don't get that, I can see there's going to be a kind of a point at which we go, well, we've been at this a couple of years. What are we actually getting for this investment? And if I'm a CMO sitting there saying, well, I've invested, you know, I don't know, $10 million, $50 million, you name the number, and I'm not seeing a return on it, I'm not going to go the next year, yeah. right? When someone like me turns up and says, hey, can I have that plus 30% next year? He's going to go, no. In fact, I'm going to cut it. So, you know, I think there's a there's an imperative on the industry to get that right, to work together, to make sure we genuinely get to that closer report to the I'm concerned that there are too many um, parties in this space that are looking at the clean room as a monetization play in and of itself, rather than as a facilitator of creating a meaningful audiences that you can then target for relevant messaging. Yeah. I think if you think of it as just a monetization play, you're missing the point here. You, you're going to make advertising are are going to invest uh, if it allows them to create a meaningful audience that they can then serve messaging up and down the funnel and then measure the performance of that against the the outcomes that you've been seeking to do. I think that's critically important. I, what's promising to me about something like Amazon Marketing Cloud is the way it works is they basically put in place rules rules that prevent you from being able to identify a specific household with those rules in place absent your ability to do that your ability to build an audience using behavioral um, uh, 
profiles. I want someone who shopped like this, you know, the most creative way you can possibly think. You're only limited by your imagination and then your ability to say, okay, just because I can measure it, do I want to measure it? Because I think we can go to the other end and say, oh, and now it's providing me this great ability. And you're like, yeah, but you really, you, you don't need to measure everything. You only measure things where you, it's going to, it's going to mean that you're delivering a, a beneficial outcome to you and to the retailer. Yeah. And that, that's a, that's a really key point that because there's a lot of data swimming around potentially here. You know, you see a lot of, of networks, you know, being built. And, you know, there's over 600 of these things already up running. So that's, that's complex in itself. And they've all got lots and lots of data. What the job still to be done, I think, is to really narrow down based on a number of, probably a number of really cool scenarios of what you're trying to do to say, what are the actual driving metrics here that I really must have? Because I don't think, you know, it's not going to be 50 metrics, yeah. right? There's probably going to be less than 10 that are really, really key here that you want to be able to have on all the campaigns that, you know, trying to do the same thing. Um, and so there's a, there's a big piece of work, I think, to be done around understanding the really the, the really powerful things that are going to be triggering uh, consumer behaviour around select audiences. So, so you're absolutely right. Um, and, and it's never a good thing if it's just about the money. Um, you know, it's got to be done, I think, in the right way because, you know, we if we lose sight of the fact that this only works when it's right for the consumer, if you lose sight of that, we all fail. Right, so I think I think you're absolutely right. We've got to, we go go into this with the mindset of how we create the right audiences with the, with the right creative to show up in someone's life at exactly the right moment. That's when you win, right? Because it will make their life you know faster, better, cheaper, easier, whatever you're trying to get to. Um, and if you don't do that, yeah. you know we'll see it today. Right? I mean, you know, I buy, I buy a pair of shoes on on a on a platform, and then you know that, I just see adverts for shoes for days. Yeah, it's like, well, I've already bought the shoes. I know. I'm sure it's when, when, is it, exactly. all, you know, when is it well, what is the relevant next touch message? Right. It drives me crazy when I would go and buy something, I think back to the Catalina model, and it would be very transactional. I'd run it across the register, and what would spit out? Coupon for the compiler. Well, I just bought this. What's the likelihood I'm going to use that? Yeah, very yeah. low. Yeah. If I'm buying pasta, show me pasta sauce. Yeah, exactly. cheese, right? That would show me a different pasta brand. Help me complete the mission. Think about what I So I think back eight or nine years ago when I was working at a retailer, uh, I would sit down with the merchant and we would be getting ready to walk into that to display our annual plan to the chief merchant at the division. And we'd be sitting in the office and all of a sudden it would dawn on the merchant, oh, the digital component. And he'd pick up a phone and he'd call the person in the on-chain digital group, so can you email me over the three pages you were going to put together on what our digital strategy is, so I can put it in the back of the book? And that's that was that was the level of integration and thought that went into the digital component. So my question to you is, how is Coca-Cola evolving? How it collaborates with retail customers around digital, and um, and is digital a core component of joint business plans? And, and, and how do you make it something? Why is it important to do so? Yeah, I mean, in short, yes, it is. Uh, I also was <laughs> recognising exactly that what you described. Yeah. You know, when I was when I used to run the digital team in the UK, it was it was the art, it was the afterthought, it was the ad. Very much. Well, I have, I have to have it to check yeah, the box. And, and to a degree, I think I think COVID changed a lot of people's thinking around that. Right, and suddenly it became so important. And you know, the other way I was often articulated internally is whilst it might only now be you know ten fifteen percent. Your business, look at how much of your growth is likely to be 
generated in the next three to five years. Right? So probably forty to fifty percent yeah. watt basis. And so, how are you going to hit your business plan in the next three to five years if you don't focus on the digital piece? Because half your half your plan's gone, right? So, and that helps people to refocus, I think, a bit. And so, yeah, we we very much try and, and think in an omni-channel way when we're building our customer plans. Yeah. So, how does this how does this live in stores? How does this live online? And you know, how, how do you build it around consumer cohorts or whatever? And so, we're we're trying to be much more kind of strategic about it, I guess, uh, than we probably have been in the past. I was, I was talking to someone the other day, um, and he used a phrase which I really liked, which was he, he talked about how do you bring all, how do I bring all of my company to all of yours? So what he was talking about was it's not just, you know, the key account man and the, and the merchant. It's now, you know, how do we bring the marketing part? How do we bring sustainability? How do we bring our supply chain in? You know, there's a lot more going on, you know, and clearly digital is part of that. And so that broader um, a basis for the for the kind of discussions between retailers and suppliers, I think, is is accelerating and becoming more common. Not just, I think, between the bigger players, but it has to be part of you know how everybody does. Because everything's interlinked now. You can't really it's so hard to separate it. And you you know, I think I just retail media networks have just accelerated that again, where you know suddenly you've got all marketing folks wanting to have that discussion, and it's it potentially is a big part of the investment you make in a particular retailer. And so. Has to be part of that discussion. So I think the landscape is shifting around us quite fundamentally at the moment. Um, and so, you know, digital is only one element of our broader discussion base that we have. We build into our plans with our customers as much as possible. I tell every retailer that I come in contact with and surround retail media is that you have to understand that the paradigm has shifted. For 100 plus years, it's been manufacturers trying to sell their product to you. And they're successful because they come, they show up at the door and they have all the people there to help sell those products. Um, if you, if you as a retailer think that, uh, you can just sit in your home office and sell retail media to manufacturers and your goal is to particularly access budgets that here until now have not been accessible to you, think brand building budgets, uh, you're missing the boat. Like, Get on an airplane and fly to Atlanta, fly to Cincinnati, fly to where these these manufacturers are, because you're going to get a hundred people from a hundred different brands, all with their own little budgets, listening to what you have to talk about. And that's going to drive a lot more collaboration than you saying, I want you to come into my home office so I can sell you retail media. But you know what you're going to get? You're going to get the same six people that are located down the street. Maybe you'll get one or two people from HQ, but you're not going to have the near influence that you have. So when I think about collaboration, uh, you know, you have to think of yourselves, I say to retailers, you're trying to sell a solution and you've got to get out and influence as many people as possible. And just talking to the same people that you're used to talking to isn't going to move the needle in a significant way. No, I agree with that. I think that's right. I think, you know, the other thing is, you know, companies like us, we buy a lot of media. Yeah. Right. So we've got standards and, and ways that that happens that now. You need to learn about that. As yeah. As, as, as a retailer, right. you need to understand what their choices are and how they make those decisions. Exactly. And it has to stand up against the, the alternative. Right. If, you're a, if you're a brand manager and you've got $100 to spend, you've got a lot of places you could put that money you know, today already. And now you've got 600 media networks from retailers that have popped up that also are in the landscape. So, so you're all competing. You're competing against Facebook and Google and television and outdoor and all the rest of it, right? So so there's a there, you're right, there's a job to be done in terms of you know how you position that that product proposition to be better. 
And clearly, you know, one of the advantages is proximity to the point of purchase and closer to the quality. So if I was, you know, on the other side of the fence, that's where I'd be going heavy on proof of that um, and partnering up to do that. But, you, you know, you're right, that, that sort of balance of power, if you like, over, over time, I think it's shifting. Um, and that's a good thing. I think, you know, there's, there's huge opportunities on both sides, which I'm, I'm very positive about where that can go as an industry. I think it's, uh, it's a really good thing. My last question to you was somewhat future-looking, but it's also very timely. I think when I was with you at Shop Talk, Garrett, um, playing uh, Shop Talk Bingo, uh, you, if you had on your card chat GPT, you won big because it was uh, the topic of every conversation, as it has been at every other conference I've been to this year. So I want to talk about what you see as the transformational impact of uh, artificial intelligence on particularly how we perform search, because I think there are, there are a lot of implications. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, it, it was easy to play buzzword bingo, wasn't it? Sure, it was. some of those things and, and ChatGPT and Gen AI always come up pretty, pretty high at the minute. Um, I mean, for me, the first thing I'll say, it's early days right, yeah. for all of us. Um, so you know, we're kind of feeling our way through it. You know, we're starting to experiment with it, as, as you know, it's sort of you know, some stuff out there, particularly on the marketing side. Uh, figuring out how we use that. But I think in, in our kind of digital commerce space, you know, I'm already seeing and, and starting to think about it in, in two or three obvious, fairly obvious ways. I think that how do you build, you know, PDPs? So what does that mean? How do you build content for that? Yeah. You can see AI is going to be all over that in terms of, you know, make it, making the right choices there and making that much more efficient um, process by which that happens. Um, and I think you've got to look at the likes of, say, Carrefour or Instacart, you know, around basket building. So, you know, put, you know, chat GPT type gen AI capability into the search so that instead of forcing you to go around the store to, to look at all this stuff when I'm building the basket, you just describe what you want. You know, I've got a household of four people, I've got two kids, I need five large boxes for school, I've got, you know, so on, on so Sunday night, build me a basket. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think that's where we're going to see that coming in. I think that's, that's really interesting in terms of, of how easy that potentially can be for a shopper, which is why I really think it'll stick. Um, because I think if, if we get to the point at which it's really enhancing the shopper's um, uh, way that they shop online in particular, because if you if you row back a minute, right, you think about how online shopping, online grocery shopping is, has evolved. You know, I've been in this space quite a while, and I think that's the early days when I was starting to get involved. It was yeah. almost like retailers had no choice but to build a website based on the floor plan of a supermarket. Right. And they said, okay, so we put that on the screen. And then they go up and down all the aisles. Now, who thought that was a good idea, right? I know that was the only choice we had at the time, right? But we're at a place now, I think, where we could completely rethink that in the future of what that shopping experience in UX can be in a world in which AI is driving a lot of the choices. What I can see, I think, is a split in terms of the typical kind of household shopping basket. And there are a bunch of categories, I think, like, um, I don't know, if you've got kids, young kids in the household, you know, divers, you know, you, yeah. you, you sure as heck don't want to run out of them. You don't waste a lot of time thinking about shopping for them, right? You know, household cleaning products, all those kind of categories that you just you just know you need oh, regular right. usage, right? Why can't we just have that as an automated management, right? You know, some sort of subscription model that just delivers. If you're a brand and you're investing, that's something you want to invest in. It's how right. because the opt-out rate of those kinds of mechanisms. So if I'm a brand person and a retailer is affording me the opportunity to advertise a subscribe and save model, I'm putting my dollars there every chance I get. Yeah. 
Exactly. And so that, that takes that kind of, you know, part of the journey out. The other half then is left to much more, you know, experiential, inspirational. Yeah. It's about fresh produce. It's about dinner, you know, it's about dinner plans. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. So, and I, so I think there's going to be eventually what this could facilitate is that split to your, so half the shop, which is just automated, don't want to think about it, but don't run it either. And then the other stuff, which is much more inspirational. And that's where something like Gen AI can really help us to build it and really rethink and get away from that kind of, I've just put all my arms on the on the storefront. And so I think there's a you know, potential for a really exciting change in terms of where we The description I've heard for that is it's taking us from fundamentally being vertical to be horizontal in terms of our shopping ability. So you're going to say, I've got a problem, let me solve it, don't just solve against the search term that I gave you. Yeah. I also think, by the way, that that is also possible to replicate to a degree in the in-store environment, the physical yeah. environment. So it's still layout. Oh, I so think so, too. Can, can well, the great thing about physical stores, stores they're, already, they're already built for horizontal shopping. Right. There's a reason I don't go for, in the U.S., go and shop for Fourth of July party on Amazon because I have to vertically search for it. Yeah. I go to a, I go to a program store in the U.S. and they've got Fourth of July. It's actually nice to get Everyone's there. Perfect. Yes, exactly. Uh, I will want to remind our audience, uh, please visit cpgguys.com where you can find all our content. And if you think your company has some thought leadership tribute to our ongoing community discussion, drop us an email at contact at cpgguys.com. You can join us on the podcast. And of course, don't forget to drop us a rating and review at cpgguys.com on the navigation bar at the top. And of course, thank you as always to our 23,000 plus people following community. On LinkedIn, we're so honored that you trust us to both educate and take you, uh, and we can seek to do so uh, on go. Simon, thanks so much for taking time to uh, to meet with me here in London, and to uh, you know canoe along all things about the industry that you and I find so fascinating. Thanks so much, it's just great to see it. Uh, and of course, to our audience, we're really appreciating that you took some time to listen to us, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the series, you guys. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.